Culture eats strategy for lunch and inform cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Parker, AI human with a decade doing exactly that. <laughs> with us today is Matthias. He has joined us from um, Brussels. We are very excited to have him on today. Uh, you probably have seen his speeches and his presentations at DGIQ and upcoming um, in uh, Enterprise Data World. He's going to be a presenter uh, in March in Orlando, is it correct? Uh, correct, yeah. All right. So, Matthias, would you mind just giving a quick introduction? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, first of all, Sid, thanks a lot uh, for inviting me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, so, like you said, my name is uh, Matthias uh, Verkater, and I'm from the lovely nation Belgium in the heart of Western Europe. Um, and so I'm now in the data governance space for over 12 years now. So I'm uh, yeah freelance uh, data governance consultant, trusted advisor as well, and uh, specializing now for quite some years in change management. So many people that we talked to on this podcast, this was not the journey that you envisioned in your undergraduate uh -huh. years because you, you ended up in sociology degree. So th there's... Um, as we've, as one of my other guests said, every each of us have our own unique journeys, right? And so your journey to where you are today, you know, didn't start off exactly. with this end in mind. So, how, what was what was Matthias's unique journey here? Um, so my journey, actually, if I go back before sociology, <laughs> I was uh, I was in film school, so I actually started college. Um, in a direction called, yeah, movie directing. So I wanted to be, you know, the next Steven Spielberg. Um, but yeah, that didn't work really well. So I mm -hmm. went to the university, started philosophy, which was also kind of heavy, to then go to sociology, which really, uh, yeah, fascinated me, you know, uh, how people interact. Um, and so I finished there, uh, the bachelor's degree. So undergraduate, I think it is. Uh, mm -hmm. but then I, um, um, started to Google, uh, yeah, jobs in, uh, as a sociologist, <laughs> uh, which nine out of 10 was either you, uh, pursue a PhD or you, uh, yeah, you start working at the university or you end up, you know, um, yeah you know, running a bar or something, I don't know. But th there wasn't a lot of jobs yeah. opportunities back then. Um, so I, um, ma I took a master's degree in business economics. Uh, so, um, and yeah, you know, got really uh, immersed in, in how organizations run, which is also a bit of a, a, a social science, you know, economics. Um, mm -hmm. and so I graduated, uh, with a master's degree in, in business economics, but yeah, then still then didn't know exactly what to do. I had no clue what data was or even what data governance was. Um, and so I ended, uh, landed this job at a company called Hilti, um, where they were looking for like this, um, it was actually a data steward, but it had different name, uh, back then, like. 12, 13 years ago. And yeah, that's how I rolled into uh, the data world uh, by being, you know, at the bottom of the ladder, the operational data steward 
you know, cleaning data, being responsible for the customer, master data, you know, implementing processes and without knowing, um, yeah, got into the data world, getting to know data quality, got it to know uh, data governance and, uh, and yeah, it was really, the, um, started to grow, you know, as a passion to me and uh, that's how it yeah, started. It's a- uh, there's some interesting observations you had in the early days as the outsider, right? The non-technical person, the non-data analyst, you know, in your early days at Hilti. You know, what were some of those observations that, you know, perhaps you as the non-technologist that you are leveraging today or, or maybe helped you take that next step? Because you're going to have a different lens than the people mm-hmm. who are writing reports or thinking about how to engineer large data systems. One of the things I learned uh, from back in my sociology uh, studies was to yeah, observe how groups of people, you know, you interact and so on. And so one of the first thing that, that really struck me was yeah, this big difference between, you know, the business side of a company and, and you know, the, the salespersons, the sales representatives, and, you know, the, the IT guys on the other side who were, yeah, Nine out of ten, they were managing the data. So, and there was this this big gap uh, mm-hmm. between them. And so, that was one of the first observations uh, that people from the business side had difficulty talking with people on the IT side. They also had different priorities and objectives as the people from IT. And this was a bit of you know a clash sometimes. And that was one of the first observation. And as I started as a data steward, I was actually you know in between those two uh, groups of people. Mm-hmm. And, and that over the past 12, 13 years now that I'm in the field didn't change at all. Um, so I did, there are, are, of course, you know, I've, I've been uh, at companies where they really implement best practices and you see that data as being part of, of business. And, uh, but still when I, because companies call me in you know, to, to solve you know, their data, Chaos. Uh, still <laughs> there, you um, you see those two those two yeah uh, groups of people and business still having difficulty to understand data, IT, and and vice versa. Also, if it were a solved problem, we'd have a very 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 boring podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> I know it. It was um, on a related note. I was having a conversation with my teenager last night and he's like well dad you just don't understand and it's like no no son i was a teenager too yes absolutely i could say stupid stuff and i would not have to worry about it being shared on text or mess and then it's been uh, uh memorialized because it was written over text i didn't have those issues right so i do feel for you but buddy People are people and we don't change as quickly as the technology. So all these things, all these feelings, all this stuff you're going through, you don't want to, I know you don't want to hear it from me, but um, we're we're more similar and we had similar journeys. So you had this interesting observation in your first foray into the professional world when you were working at Hilti. Mm -hmm. Did you know at the time, you know, what you were experiencing? Did you sit there and look at this? Oh, this is a Hilti thing? Or were you, you know, were you... When did that kind of awareness that this is things, something that many organizations experience, when did that kind of awareness hit you? Yeah, that that, that came later. Um, so mm-hmm. after Hilti, I went to Barry Calabot, you know, the big corporate chocolate factory. And there 
You, mm -hmm. you, I, I noticed that they were organized differently. You see different processes. Um, and so first you think, okay, it's another company, it's another culture. Um, but then when I started being a consultant, come, I came, come across uh, different companies, large companies, mid-sized companies, you see these patterns and you see these things happen again and again. And so, like I said, you, you have, um, you know, it's all related with what they now like to call, you know, data maturity and data literacy. And, mm -hmm. and it's really like that. You see, it's like a curve. Um, where you begin at the bottom and a company is not data literate, is not data aware, um, and they, they, you need to help them become literate. And you see when, when they progress on that curve and they become more data literate, more data aware, they establish a data culture that they also going to organize, uh, them, themselves differently. And they're trying to bridge, you know, these gaps and, um, and especially uh the ones who really are uh implementing governance you know corporate wide very good they really also starting to act towards their data like an asset and and that's also my going in you know that asset management kind of point of view um uh, mm -hmm. similarly like human resource man the, the hr department manages the people asset and the, mm -hmm. the finance department manages the money asset you know Coming to that level where a company manages data uh, like an asset, you know, that's uh, where you, they want to go to. And between uh, that ultimate goal and where they start, that, that there's a big curve. And uh, and that's what I noticed at uh, coming across different, different companies that there are these, yeah, every company is at a different level. Um, and it's still, I'm still amazed when I speak to companies today and they say like, like today I had a call with a, a potential prospect with a client um, and they're saying, yeah, a big corporate uh, globally. And they say, yeah, we're a data governance uh, department and we're in the tech uh, side and, uh, and we built, you know, these reports and we put some data quality in it and, and they're this big company. And then I'm still amazed from, yeah, why, why, why do you do that? Why do you create that data governance department? stuffed in the basement of, of IT, whether, you know, just have it installed as, as an asset kind of uh, management thing. And, and so. It, it, yeah, I loved when we were talking a week or two back that you used asset management because I couldn't agree more on that aspect. I remember giving a talk at Microsoft offices, probably going on like 10 years ago now, and trying to get people to realize Data is one of your most important assets that you have. It is just about almost everything, your history of your company, your thoughts, your, you know, the, the, the way that you've interacted with customers. And it's like even holding up my laptop, shaking. Mm -hmm. It's like, look, there's an asset tag on the bottom of this. Like, but this laptop is like worth far less and the entire fleet of laptops or servers and everything. But we spend so much time tracking and managing that way in life cycles around, you know, the, the asset uses, asset disposition, depreciation, everything but we don't think about and still struggle to manage our data in that same way. So you have moved from in the last, I was, I was trying to remember the dates, but it's been a while now that you moved out of full-time and they're now on a, maybe lack of a better word, crusade to help companies you know, <laughs> advance their understanding. And so you have been 
been doing the good work from the outside mm-hmm. for a lot of customers for a while now. So how did you make that leap to moving from internal to external and um, being the care and the guider? <laughs> yeah. So, so um, it, my, my personal philosophy is, is, is everything I do stems out of, uh, you know, passion. Uh, mm-hmm. That has been since I was uh, studying. When I was young, I was studying. I had a passion for movies, so I started to to go to the film school. Uh, didn't turn out. I had a passion for philosophy. So, and that's that's how everything uh, runs a bit. Um, and so I was, um, I think, seven years now uh, when I started working. I was seven years um, active as an employer. You know, working mm-hmm. for two big companies, first Tilti, then I was employed at Barry Calabot. And, and over those years, I really, you know, um, started to to study data governance on my mm-hmm. own because there's there's no no core. Back then, there was no course. There was no dataversity platform. You know, you had YouTube and, and I was reading, you know, the books of John Latley, Bob Siner, you know, the Dayman. Mm-hmm really got into that data governance and um, and I always had a passion, you know, to to become uh, independent, to create my own kind of business. And so after seven years, I thought, yeah, I have experience. I think it's relevant enough. Uh, so let's uh, make the jump and, and uh, become a freelancer. And so uh, try it um, all kind of things. But in everything I did, my main focus always was, you know, as a foundation was data governance. And on mm-hmm. top of that, I specialized in change management because over the the, the, the seven years when I was an, an employee, I always mm-hmm. uh, was involved in, you know, uh, in, in, in change, in uh, acted as a change agent for lots of projects. Um, and so, yeah, change management became my, my focus as well as, you know, data literacy, data culture, um, awareness creation and uh, and that resulted in lots of uh, initiatives that I that I did uh, as well as the consultancy projects uh, I did as well and so now I'm a freelance consultant now for five years and counting so and there are some interesting um, observations and ways that you as your your freelance work going to clients to help. Um, that puts you forward also as a requested speaker, right? This is not how most people approach these things. And this is interesting recognition. Um, and it was, you know, again, there's so many scary things around how we're similar, like your your wife's occupational therapist, my wife's speech, you know, pathologist, like just kind of odd overlaps in our, in our thinking in our lives here. But uh, one of those things was how you approached helping clients figure out why change was needed what that change needed to be, and then the the adoption piece on how to do that. And you're getting ready to give some speeches on that, but I think your your positioning and how you approach helping clients is is a good thing to talk about. So how did you get to how did you evolve those ideas? And 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 maybe if you want to, you can start talking about what those ideas are, and we can talk about the evolution of them. Over the past twelve years that uh, twelve years that I'm helping companies in general, establishing data governance, maturing data governance, um, you know, change was always, you know, a central piece. For example, at Hilti, um, mm-hmm. data quality was also one of my focus points. And one of the things was to increase 
the data quality of the contact person data of the customer data, uh, which was managed by the sales representative. So you need to imagine a sales rep um, going from you know customer to customer, and in the meantime, you know making sure that the data is 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 proper. And I was starting to think, okay, how can I increase the focus? And so one of the first thing I thought, yeah, let's make it a, a competition. Let's create, you know, this ranking. You know, you have the top five uh, sales representative with the greatest increase in data quality, and you have the bottom five. You know, uh, a bit of a wall of I think we called it a wall of fame and a wall of shame. Um, and so we started like like that, and then we uh, we managed to have you know the 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 sales director have um, this data quality KPI in their bonuses as well. And so by doing these things. Thinking outside of the box, um, that triggered me to think. Okay, yeah, this is change management. This is this is making sure that the behavior of those people change from you know this as is kind of situation where they say, yeah, I don't have time to manage that data towards a situation where they say, hmm, if I do that, you know, I I I end up in the wall of fame and I get this bonus and and they see the benefits of having proper data quality as well. And so these kind of things happened to me in, in, at my work at Hilti, at my work at Barry Calibot, and so on and so on, um, with, to, to basically change uh, people's behavior from an as is to a to be, which triggered me also to start to investigate, yeah, how can I do that properly? Uh, so I came across books from I th- William Bridges, I think his name, about change management, as well as you know, yes. the, the Atkar model. Uh, mm-hmm. I talked about from uh, Prosky. And so basically with that input and, and practice it on the floor as well, that really, you know, um, triggered my passion for change. Now, what I also noticed, so my change was always focused on, you know, the implementation of data governance, uh, on, on, you know, uh, onboarding the people, you know, onboarding data stewards, onboarding data owners making them aware of why data governance is important, why the company is investing in data governance, no training. Um, But what I was still struggling with was the beginning of data governance. How does a data governance, in a nutshell, start? You you do an assessment, you have some meetings with with your sponsor, it can be the CDO, and in the best case, it's a CDO, or it can be, you know, a head of data and analytics or, or whatever. So you have this bunch of meetings and these brainstorm sessions and and yeah, you always have the feeling that yeah, this, this will take on for weeks, for months until we have a decision. So how can we speed it up? We, it's, it's, it's not so difficult. How can we speed up that decision making? How can we align mm-hmm. those small teams? It's, it's not like we at the beginning that we work with 50 people. No, often uh, it's two people, five people. So how can we speed it up? And that's when a couple of years ago, and, and, and I think it was through an Instagram ad, I came, ac- <laughs> I came across this course on workshop facilitation. And I think mm-hmm. that, that's interesting. Uh, and so I took the course and they, they explained exercises and all and techniques and trying to, to apply that and, and it really works. So, so instead of having, you know, these meetings with, you know, endless debates and no clear steps and no decisions, you know, going towards these time boxed 
workshops where you really get an alignment, you really get those decisions in a shorter amount of time. Now, where I am today is I'm creating this strategy sprint. So it's, it's, it's um, inspired on the design sprint. And the design mm -hmm. sprint is an invention of a uh, guy. His name is Jake Knapp. It's uh, worked at Google. And then that company, AJN Smart, where I took the workshop facilitation course, they recreated it also for, you know, services and other things and, and strategies. And, um, and so um, I applied those techniques on data governance and it works properly. And so um, I uh, turned it also in, you know, trainings and keynotes. And that's how I ended up speaking at the DGIQ and Enterprise Data World. And, uh, yeah. I think there's a couple of things I'd love to underline for everybody on why, you know, we are invested in this topic. Yeah. And so if I could add to what you just said there, it's odd to me that has taken all of us, and I'm going to include myself because I didn't have this realization. Let's be real. I didn't have this realization in the early days either. But data and using data well is inherently there to do for decision making, right? Because if we didn't use data, then we just continue to make the same decisions, right? As, as a sales rep, if I don't look at the data, I'm just going to go off of, you know, the, the wetware processes that I've used to collect inputs from the world and then just continue to make the same decisions over and over and over, mm -hmm. which at that point, I'm just running through motions versus can you really say it's decision making at that point? And, and so then if I'm using data to make decisions, then I actually should be thinking from day one that change is going to happen. Because if I'm actually using the information, I'm trying to use it to inform myself on what new decisions I could be making. What, how can I better inform my model? You know, whether that's this model, the organizational model, whichever model it is, right? I've been trying to inform the model to make, do something different. So... All of that change management processes just couldn't be a bigger fan of what you're doing, right? Because it is very important for us to think about that. But there's another aspect that you haven't mentioned yet that I, it, I don't think it's in your DGIQ presentation, but it wasn't something else we talked about. And that is that golden circle concept. When you walk people through the why, how, what, so that we have properly identified the reasons mm -hmm. for everyone to change and the and, and then to go believe in that change. So where do you introduce that into your processes and how, and how has that gone with clients when, when, you, when you walk them through the golden circle concepts? Actually from the, from the start, um, because mm -hmm. often when I start talking with client or, or anybody, um, they always have the assumption that um, data governance, you know, is scary. It's big, it's difficult, you know, it, it has the word governance in it, so it cannot, it <laughs> cannot be good. Um, and I always um, try to make it as simple as possible. So my point of view is always, how do I explain this to my mother? Um, so she <laughs> understands it and, and just, you know, she has no clue about data or whatever. So I try to make, to explain it always as, as simple as possible. In doing that, you need to go back to the origin of why the company exists. Um, so you need to uh, figure out, okay, why do we, you know, if you're a sausage factory, why do we produce sausages or why do we sell 
insurances. And then also every company has, has objectives. They have a strategy like this is where we want to go at uh, in 2025. This is where we want to be in 2030. This is our North Star. Um, every company has that. And then you just need to think, okay, so um, how can data or, you know, data management capabilities, um, you know, support that business objective? You don't, you don't want to um, create a data quality process just because John from operations is yelling the loudest he needs data quality and just supporting his goal. No, you want to have data quality because it supports, uh, you know, the, the customer 360 uh, ambition the company has for 2025. Um, and so what I always try to do is link those data governance and data management capabilities one-on-one -on -one to the company objective because that helps to explain in your change uh, process why you're doing that. So you're creating this purpose, you're creating this vision as well, saying, okay, this is where we want to go. This is where we want to, this is the level of data stewardship we want to go to. Um, and, and this is the first thing that I always try to do is really working on that mindset. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's the most important thing because lots of companies that I, uh, been with, and certainly at the start, I always ask them, yeah, could you tell me why you're doing data governance within your company? Yeah. I have to imagine that's one of the reasons that you have settled on a lot of the workshop concepts that you've done. I, I mm -hmm. think. There's a lot of goodness in what people are saying is that, you know, customers are very good at understanding their own data and what they need. But I think that simplifies things too much because when we sim simply say, well, everybody's got the same basic things, you know, if you're a for-profit company, you're, how do I increase revenue? How do I do it for less money, i.e. efficiency? And then how do I reduce risk? But I think that glosses over the fact that every, just like what you said there is, I might be, you know, making sausage. I might be doing insurance. So everybody chooses how differently to pursue those things. Even in making sausage or insurance, there's still even wide varieties in there. Different values, different people in those companies. And so, you know, you can even walk into a computer manufacturer and say, okay, yeah, we make computers. But everybody in that room is going to have a different way that they view the pursuit of value. Like, hey, we're going to, I want to go serve the consumer market. I want to go do enterprise. I want to go do on and on and on. And it's that pursuit of value, saying that is easy, but then as people, and this is probably a little bit where your sociology helps, um, driving consensus is challenging, yeah. right? You know, even, even with what could be a, a very well-articulated core principle or core values for the company, that still is so much opportunity to interpret how, the, how that value pursuit. So in all your workshopping, since you've doing that, how have you found like the the the, um, the big benefit for for companies? Is, is it is it becoming easier to sell the workshopping process to clients? Are they get are they you know are they um, grabbing to that value and to that idea quickly, or has that been a challenge for you? No, it 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 goes um, rather quickly. Uh, I I also say it, that's the way I work, so so they actually don't ha <laughs> don't, don't have a choice. So, um, and, and it's also one of the first things yeah, I do. I say, okay, let's get together. Let's, let's do it in a workshop way. So, so we, we do a couple of exercises uh, where we figure out, you know, the challenges you encounter today. Uh, let's map some of your pain points, for example. So 
But that doesn't mean, coming back also to, to a previous point on the golden circle and explaining why, um, I, st I still today encounter people who are really still focused, you know, on those low hanging fruits and uh, mm -hmm. really having difficulty explaining them. Yeah. The, why they should do, do data governance, even though I always use you this bottom up approach with the use cases, uh, that I did a quality use case to start. And, um, and so, um, there the workshop really, really helps because in a workshop you, um, because those kind of people really hate, you know, fluff, fluffy speech and these theoretical frameworks. <laughs> and, and so using these workshops, you know, and imagine really a workshop, you know, sticky notes, you know, post-its, putting them on the wall, you know, writing with a big marker on them. So these kind of exercises really makes them, you know, okay, I, I, I can put my thoughts on a piece of paper. I stick it to the wall. It becomes for them really tangible. Um, and so they can put their, you know, low hanging fruit things they want on the wall. And that's a really uh, good thing eh, to, as a good base. And, um, and those workshops uh, also helps to convince those type of people. Whether in the past, I was really struggling, you know, because I was doing, you know, meetings and then I thought oh, I will do this inspirational talk. But yeah, that was doing more harm than good. And by leveraging mm -hmm. now these workshops uh, and actually be more of a guide than, you know, an inspirator really helps because they have a sense that they provide the input and they, they really get bought into that, 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 that work, that process. And that, that really helps. So I always get the quote wrong, do a rough approximation here, but you can learn more about people in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. Yeah. I uh, um, attributed that to Socrates, but I don't think that he's actually the one that said it. I'll look it up at some point. This is the second time I've said it. I yeah. should, I should uh, fact check myself at some point, but it is a real quote and it is something that we have done a lot in our own workshop facilitation too. So for people listening that have not yet done as much of the workshopping, Describe the constructive tension that you see in a lot of these things. You know, the, what does that mean to you when you start to see that happening in your workshops with, with, um, with your participants? Just to get to the basics first. So a workshop, um, it usually has a goal. So for example, if we want to, uh, you know, get a good idea about our data challenges, uh, you know, and get a, you know, prioritized list of, of, of which use cases we will tackle, for example. So that's the goal. So, and then in preparation of, of that workshop, um, there are a lot of exercises you can do. Like, there are like mm -hmm. thousands of exercises, but there are a couple that I, I, I always use like a sailboat exercise uh, or lightning demo. So these, you can Google those, those names, exercises, they really exist. Um, and so what are the principles of those exercises is, um, so what you try to do is, um, first of all, everybody gets, you know, posted, but they, they work alone. So they write their own, uh, thoughts on that post-it. Um, this we do because otherwise what you often have in, in a meeting or in a brainstorm, you know, you have like five to seven people or 10 people, you have the boss there, you have, you know, the extroverted, uh, person there mm -hmm. and and when 
people uh, want to share some ideas, what you often have outlawed is that, you know, the extroverted starts talking, you know, uh, then the boss uh, comes in and, and more the more introvert persons, you know, they, they shut down and they go to the back. And that's one thing you avoid by doing these workshop exercises is you let people work alone on their post-it and, you know, and then have stick them, stick them on the wall. Um, so that's one thing uh, where you see these, these um, collaboration forces pop up. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the first magic of, of a workshop. So everybody can bring in their uh, ideas, their opinions or their challenges, uh, whether in a, in a traditional meeting, they would be silent and not here. Yeah. So that's one first thing and one benefit. The second thing um, is, of course, it's, it's time boxed, meaning each exercise, mm -hmm. you know, is depending on 30 minutes, 60 minutes. It's, it, and it really has a structure, you know, it's, uh, it has, you know, a collecting information phase, it has a creation phase, or it has a, you know, a commitment phase where we vote whether also their difference with a traditional meeting or, or, or a bad workshop is that, you know, discussions start to happen and there's no adding and suddenly, you know, ah, the meeting is over. I need to run for my other meeting. Let's uh, have another meeting to talk about the next steps, you know, uh, been there, done that. So, and that's one thing you avoid with uh, these uh, time boxed uh, exercises. Um, thirdly, um, every workshop also ends with a clear decision. And that's mm -hmm. why there's also a voting system. So also in the workshop, in doing a particular exercise, you give the participants, you know, these sticky round dots where they can vote. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we have these ideas. Uh, so hey, what's your opinion? What's your opinion? And so it takes like, if people start to ramble and it takes 30, 40 minutes until you're uh, around the table and you hear everybody's opinion and then it's still not clear, okay, where's the majority of, of, of the opinion of the group? And by doing this voting, you know, in like two or three minutes, you exactly know, okay, this post-it has the most dots on it. So mm -hmm. that's the opinion of the group. So you, you gain lots of time and you see, yeah, people, and still there's no discussion, this, this it's almost silent activity, um, it, but, but we animate it um, in this. Uh, so everybody, even the introvert has the opportunity to put their opinions there. To have uh, to to have their ideas there to to make a vote, um, and then it's still up to the boss. He gets a decider vote. So, okay, that's the one. But it's a very mm -hmm. democratic way of working. It's really fun as well, and um, and yeah. so it's a big advantage in comparison with a traditional uh, meeting or a traditional brainstorm. And and, and th you you answered the question better than I asked. <laughs> Because <laughs> I think one of the key things in your description, your explanations on what happens there, and actually, honestly, what should happen, um, and, and what I was trying to get to in asking the question, is workshop is overused. Workshop has, right now, unfortunately, a lot of watered-down meetings. And what you just described is what is key for a positive and beneficial workshop happening in the organization, right? Like, it is, there's going to be tension, but it's also, how do I make sure to get all of the ideas out of the, these important constituents in the room 
Because as you mentioned, if you don't facilitate a workshop well, you don't get all you don't get everything out that needs to be out, and you had you let domineering players control the conversation and the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is that those domineering players may not be the right decision makers or not and frequently don't have the right ideas. And so then we miss and and the engagement stall because the people who also should have been contributing didn't contribute. And then the fuller picture and what's really needed to happen. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a less belief, right? So. And and what also happened back then, before I start doing this, they they then looked at me and they said, Yeah, but you're the consultant. Tell us what to, <laughs> tell us what to do. What to do. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And and then back then I said, Yeah, you have these for example, you have these different data governance operating models, you know, centralized or decentralized and and okay, just like, you know, um, at a restaurant as a waiter say, this is the dishes we have. What do you want to pick? And, um, but at the end of the day, um, it still feels for them, for the client that mm-hmm. it, that they're, you know, being, yeah, the consultant told us to do so that it will be the best practice and implemented that way. But then it's, it doesn't come from them. It's, yeah. it, it's not embedded uh, it doesn't have their mark on it and it feels you know a bit uh you know not uh genuine enough um whether now um i do not play the role of the consultant i'm the facilitator and i facilitate the exercises i of course give my expertise uh as well um, if I see they're going to the wrong direction or something doesn't fit their data culture or their company culture, I, I, I correct them. But by doing these exercises, you know, the things uh, or yeah, what they want to realize come out of them, comes out of the, the, the company, out of the stakeholders. And it's much more, it's much easier, especially for the change um, to embed, you know, data governance, to embed data quality, because it's their idea, it's their, defi- they made up their definition, they they invented their own operating model. And so it's for them much different, much easier to explain the purpose, to explain why they do it, uh, to explain why people should participate instead of previously, I'm the consultant, you know, this is this is what I seen there. I suggest yeah. you. I suggest you do that. <laughs> so and um, and that's a big shift I see, and that's um, and it's and it's such an important topic and it's such an important mindset because at that point we we are co-creating, right? Yeah. And we are then engaging, and and then the clients are better able to engage with us as a consulting staff because then we learn more about them, they learn more about us, and we're at that point creating the future together versus articulating our own viewpoints on it. Matthias, you are um, getting ready to give some big presentations here. Where can folks um, find you next as you're out and speaking across the globe at this point? Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, it's um, one of my dreams as well coming true. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I will be speaking uh, within two weeks, beginning of December at the Data Governance and Information Quality Conference in Washington, D.C. Um, Then in March, again, at the Enterprise Data World at uh, Orlando, Florida. Yeah, and um, I hope, so it's my beginning of my speaking site career so i hope uh, much <laughs> much more 
conferences and events will, will come. We're very excited for you. And again, thank you for making time for us today. It was awesome to have you on. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, I hope to, uh, to see you uh, yeah. in, in real life one day at uh, one of the conferences. Yeah, and if you ever make it to Austin, you always have a place to stay. Yeah, okay. Uh, bet uh, I will be on your doorstep one day. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, we'll look forward to it. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture change makers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.